Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk O'Bear, your host. So strap in, grab a cup of joe, and enjoy the show. So big news that broke earlier this week. It's actually been an ongoing story, but it relates to a science lab, a testing lab scandal that's been going on in Massachusetts. And so far, uh, there are thousands of defendants that are probably going to have their convictions reversed based upon the conduct of both a lab technician and the prosecutors that were in charge of these cases. So I kind of want to break it down and talk about what's so very wrong with this situation. Basically, there was a lab analyst who it was discovered actually a a few years ago had been um, stealing evidence out of the testing room where all the evidence is kept and particularly cocaine crack cocaine things like that were coming up a bit late uh you know in the amount that was supposed to have been seized and somehow this analyst kept it you know to herself and and uh and whatnot for a while and then it was discovered that she had been stealing drugs basically from the laboratory And on top of that, she had been um, falsifying reports uh, as it relates to the weight, obviously, because it would be very easy to say, hey, this quantity of drugs was this amount, but it's it's less than what the cops said for some crazy reason, you know, wink, wink. But also because of this ongoing drug habit that this analyst had, uh, the work itself was simply not being done. And there was a lot of what we call pencil whipping. Um, Maybe that's kind of an arcane term that we older lawyers used to use in the context of when people actually use pencils. (laughs) But it means, if you don't know what it means, that uh, a report is generated just based on what they think the outcome should be without doing the actual work. And, you know, that lab, like pretty much every crime lab throughout the country, um is plagued by a number of issues that have to do with keeping qualified personnel involved because the pay is so low. There are so many more attractive jobs out there for scientists and chemists. Um, And also the fact that there's time pressure, funding issues, all kinds of stuff that contribute to a problem with uh, both backlogs and performance issues and everything else. I mean, we've seen it here in Wisconsin with the tremendous backlog of DNA kits that have been collected. And there have been initiatives by our current Attorney General, Josh Call, to eliminate that backlog by devoting more resources, more personnel. It's had some impact, but um, it's still something that is lagging far behind. So let me me touch on that just for a little bit as to why that is. Um, When we say sexual assault kits, what we mean is that when somebody reports a sexual assault and uh, there's a police investigation that gets involved, there's a collection of DNA material. And oftentimes the perpetrator of that crime is unknown. Um, so they will still process the, the kit, so to speak, um, get some DNA from various different sources and hold on to it. And uh, they can run it through the database to see if there's a hit. But um, the things that get priority are where there is a known perpetrator. 
And when that happens, they obviously have a person charged, the fact that there is a case pending and heading to trial, there are discovery issues and so forth that those cases naturally have to take priority because somebody, an actual person is being charged with it. But this DNA backlog, so to speak, uh, consists mostly of cases that the perpetrator is unknown and yet the evidence still needs to be gathered with hopes that at some point in the future there would be a match or the investigation can continue and they can find out who actually you know was the source of the dna um and we've seen quite a few cases really i would say within the past five years or so that have been cropping up where there was an unsolved crime DNA was available, and because of the fact that DNA is being gathered more and more uh, from people, that uh, there can be matches, and we've seen it happen. Now, I don't know if you know this, but it used to be that DNA would only be gathered upon conviction first for a sexual-type offense, where the court would order that somebody submit to a DNA sample. Then the law was changed so that it was basically every felony. If somebody was convicted of any felony whatsoever, then they would have to submit to a DNA sample. And then of course that goes in the database and it's subject to the possibility of a match uh, when they get around to processing all these unknown contributor samples. But then they made it so that upon a felony arrest, not even a conviction, but just an arrest, that um, an individual would have to submit to a DNA test. And the current state of the law is that an arrest, even for a misdemeanor, requires that somebody submit to a providing a DNA sample. Now, oftentimes that doesn't happen because, you know, w when you talk about the breakdown of potential crimes that are committed, some of them are felonies, a huge amount are misdemeanors, and a tremendous amount are non-criminal. So that's kind of that middle category, but you know, misdemeanors are very common. And um, just the reason, you know, the distribution of resources and the ability to do things, especially where it's a not a situation where someone's being brought into custody, um, you know, there's a, a bit of a haphazard application of this process. But they're trying to get better, you know, and ultimately, you know, whether you like it or not, the idea here is that they're going to have as much DNA in the DNA databases as possible uh, so that as many potential contributors can be uh, compared to the unknown DNA samples in all of the sexual assault kits that are out there. Um, so that's quite an undertaking. It's it's something that, by the way, if you just, if you tested it today and tried to run a match, um, the database or pool of potential contributors is going to change tomorrow and it'll grow it's then it's going to grow next week and then it's going to grow next month and then it's going to grow next year so it's a bit of a scientific mathematical problem in terms of trying to keep up with all this but you know it's just an example of some of the issues that happen in crime labs you know i'm just giving this example as an issue that we've seen here where the pressure i guess to uh hurry it up and get things done is something that can weigh upon the staff. So back to this Massachusetts situation. This analyst um, that was a scientist that had been there for quite some time, as I've already said, has started to, you know, she was basically stealing drugs and using them. And 
because of all the demands and workload and everything else, there were a lot of um, results. In fact, the majority of the results that this person processed that were simply made up. And that's bad, <clears throat> obviously. The thing that's even worse is that the prosecutors in several different counties, and I'm not just talking about one person, but several, um, and the true number of prosecutors that were involved in all this is yet to be completely determined, but they have at least a few people on the hook now. And uh, there was a hearing earlier this week in the Massachusetts, um, they're equivalent of what we would call the Office of Lawyer Regulation right here in Wisconsin, but there it's called the Board of Bar Overseers or something like that, um, where they impose, they investigate and impose discipline uh, for lawyers for ethical misconduct. So there was a an allegation um, levied earlier this, this week, and it was basically against one of the chief prosecutors in a very large county in Massachusetts who they're alleging was completely aware of all of this uh, misconduct that was going on and didn't do anything about it. In other words, if they got a, a lab report that says it's cocaine and yet they knew that there was this investigation ongoing to this lab analyst who was stealing the drugs and falsifying reports, naturally a prosecutor's obligation would be to notify somebody about that, but especially the defense lawyers, the people that are representing people that are accused of crime and probably sitting in jail waiting for their case to be heard. And this particular lawyer that where this most recent complaint was issued sat back and did nothing for a very long time. And the question now arises, you know, is that, I mean, clearly it's a deprivation of, um, one's civil rights it's a violation of the discovery rules it's an ethical violation but it's also like an intentional effort to you know prosecute people without knowing that the evidence that you have is not reliable so we're gonna have to take a break but we'll be right back after these messages welcome back talking about this uh, ongoing controversy that's erupted in the state of massachusetts regarding the falsification of uh, lab reports for drug testing that occurred. And uh, the, the particular lab analyst that's involved here had been covering up the fact that, you know, there was a major like drug addiction issue going on. And as a result of that had, you know, obviously compromised the integrity of the entire testing process. Now, back when I was in the air force, uh, I did both prosecution and defense of drug cases. And the, the way the military handles things, a little different than we do in society, but you've probably heard of this, but they do random drug testing for every single person who's in the military. And I say random, like a few months could go by and you don't hear anything, but then one day you get a phone call and they say, come on down to the, the uh, base hospital and Give us a sample of your urine. You have 20 minutes to get here. And then, you know, since it's random, it could happen the very next day, too. But that's a program designed to deter use of drugs. You know, they don't, they're not going to say, hey, in six months or so, we're going to 
want to see a sample of your urine, so make sure there's nothing in it. No, they want to surprise people and say, guess what? Today's the day. Come on and pee in a cup for us. So I became very knowledgeable in the whole process of uh, testing in, in a laboratory in that particular context. Now, that has its own set of nuances because we're talking about testing of a biological sample that may may reveal um, the presence of a metabolite of a drug that was ingested that is against the law. little different than what we're talking about in Massachusetts, but the point is I'm familiar with all the um, dynamics that go into that process. And like many things, there are a lot of people involved. There's a lot of processes that work together or in sync, and sometimes they get out of sync. But there's individual people involved in all of it. And like most things in life, there are there's a variety of people in terms of their work ethic, personal problems, professional problems, you know, level of intelligence, I suppose, and all kinds of things that depend upon those human factors that, that are impossible to uh, control, especially when it's a very complicated process. So I remember having many cases, both as a prosecutor and as a defense lawyer, where they the issue of the personnel file, disciplinary file, as it were, or what you might say, um, you know, the overall integrity of the person involved in that process came under scrutiny. Interestingly enough, in our civilian courts, that's something that is generally shielded, not only from the public, but from the defense perspective, that if I were to call up the State Laboratory of Hygiene and say, hey, so-and-so tested my client's blood sample. I want to know if she was ever late for work. They're not going to tell me. You know, but in the military, because of the fact that you know that this is a, a very complicated process, and one thing that I've talked about frequently on this show, almost constantly, is how uh, in the military there is, supposedly anyway, a high priority on making sure that things are done in such a way that they are defendable uh, from the prosecutor's standpoint or from the government standpoint. So when they accuse somebody who, you know, our taxpayer dollars have paid a lot of money to train that soldier, to get them their equipment, to transport them around the world, you know, when a military member joins the military, their spouse, maybe their children, you know, all of that is part of that. So it's it's a pretty big expense per soldier to get them involved in this whole process. So then there's basic training, then there's further training, then there's all of the assignment of duties that happen in a particular duty location. And there's a tendency to want to keep those assets where they are, especially if it's a good soldier. Um, happens all the time where a quote-unquote good soldier uh, tests positive for use of drugs and then it creates a crisis so you know naturally somebody in that context is going to be prosecuted because it's against the law it's against the uniform code of military justice of course that person has to be court-martialed but before they're going to take that step there's a lot of emphasis on making sure that this process has been done correctly and that under scrutiny from anyone who might look at it. I mean, and I mean within the military, like the defense, the judge in a case, whatever, not the general public, but people involved in litigation are entitled to know every aspect, every facet of 
what's occurred in the processing of a particular sample before it can not only potentially ruin a soldier or airman's career, but also take that asset away from the unit where that person's assigned. It's kind of a big deal. So because of that, there's a lot of attention paid to the details. And what that means is that if there's any indication that there's something wrong with you know, the process or the integrity of the people that um, handled this sample, it should be known. It should be disclosed. It should be discussed. It should be litigated. And it was kind of a an interesting thing because all of that stuff was accessible. And when I started defending these cases, it was really unbelievable the amount of information that you could get about these individual people that were involved in the process. And yeah, you'd be surprised. Maybe you wouldn't. But um, the the number of things that would happen that are documented for people that, that work in these laboratories. Again, they got regular everyday human problems like we all do. Showing up late for work with the odor of alcohol on one's breath. Um, missing work because of a, you know, domestic issue. Um, financial problems. All this stuff that, that really, if we're going to get to the nitty gritty down to all the details of what is or isn't, in a particular situation, it's helpful, I think, to at least look at everything. Not to say that all that stuff necessarily came into evidence at a trial, but a lot of it did. I mean, I had a case where it turned out that the person who tested my client's urine sample had been disciplined no less than 20 times in the span of a year and a half because he had violated a number of different protocol rules. Things as simple as wearing rubber gloves when you test one sample, then changing those rubber gloves and putting a new pair of rubber gloves on before you test the next sample. Very simple. And there's a good reason for it. But he got lazy and he'd get uh, caught and he'd get disciplined. Like there'd be a letter in his file. They'd say, hey, you have to follow the rules. And he'd say, okay. And then a month later, same thing. Just, just could not get this guy to follow the rules. So in that context, it was important for the jury and for the judge and for all the parties involved with something, you know, very high stakes issues here to know that the person who was handling this stuff had been written up a number of times for just either willingly um, or completely recklessly ignoring the rules. And that was just the tip of the iceberg. There had been other issues with this person where it, you know, adjustment of uh, time things in a report. I mean, it turned out this guy really, really, really wanted to go home uh, at exactly five o'clock in the dot. So if he was in the middle of a testing process, he'd kind of fudge the numbers a bit to make it seem that, you know, he stayed there later when in fact he didn't. Same guy also had um, submitted overtime uh, requests for work that he didn't do, things like that. Again, human factors, stuff that people unfortunately fall victim to when there's that temptation. And, and unfortunately, we do see it a lot in government work. Um, you know, I work with a lot of experts in the, the forensic field and the people that whose job it is, is to do that work for the government and to create the evidence that is going to be used in prosecutions. 
generally, what I've perceived is that they feel underappreciated <laughs> and that the ones that really stick with those jobs, because it is low paying, it is hard work. There's a lot of, you know, pressure from all around. No, nobody pats that person in the back and says, good job. It tends to be like, why didn't you do this on time? Where is all, where is this report? I need you to travel. I need you to do this. I need you to do that. And there can be an attitude where one, unfortunately, can feel like the the real heart of the matter, which is putting bad guys or bad gals in jail, is being ignored uh, through all this bureaucracy and red tape. And I, I have detected that on numerous occasions throughout my career. Somebody who's involved in that process that basically says, look, we already know they're guilty. They wouldn't. I wouldn't be testing this if not for the fact that they are. And if we create too much paperwork, if we create too much detail in this process, it just gives the odds of this person getting off on a technicality, you know, a, a bit of a push. So, you know, that's where the fudge factor comes in and a little bit of manipulation of stuff just to make sure that it looks right happens. All right, time for another break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So controversy abounds in Massachusetts where a... <laughs> scandal of astronomical proportions is brewing as we've said before so um i was talking a bit about how things worked when i was both prosecutor and defense lawyer in the military when these issues came up and i remember having a couple cases where there was some uh question about the integrity of the process and what the law says what the rules of ethics say what you know, morality says is that you have to notify the defense of an issue. You don't necessarily have to say, hey, this means the case is going to get kicked or anything like that. But hey, just so you know, you should be aware that this is an issue. That's called, uh, you know, a Brady disclosure when the prosecution has to do that. And it's supposed to be viewed in the light most favorable to uh, an interpretation where it may be just to err on the side of caution something that should be disclosed so that it can be looked into. And then the defense and ultimately the judge can decide if it really matters or not. But you don't hide it. And that's exactly what happened um, in Massachusetts, is that a bunch of prosecutors that became aware of this investigation <clears throat> continued to rely upon reports that were drafted by this uh, lab analyst who had obviously been not only stealing drugs, but, you know, falsifying reports and, you know, unfortunately going down the rabbit hole of self-destruction in this whole process. And, and when the prosecutors become aware of that and do nothing and still seek to prosecute people based on these reports, you know, there's, there's an, an interesting psychological phenomenon at play here. And I was alluding to this right before the break, and that is this notion that, you know, they're, they know that these people are guilty. So, you know, why let something minor, you know, in their opinion, interfere with that prosecutorial mission? And I hate to say it, I always say it, but it becomes political at that point, because if you work in a prosecutorial agency and you work for a boss who is a prosecutor in our state, they're district attorneys. Um, that's a term that is used in many different jurisdictions, but it varies a little bit. 
Uh, but what it means is that it's somebody who's usually elected, depending on the jurisdiction, sometimes appointed. But that person has to perform statistically, has to deliver numbers, as in numbers of convictions, and not have a lot of uh, cases that went awry as a result of some sort of problem. So there's this almost like a reaction, a defensive reaction to that kind of issue where you see people freak out and try and cover it up, thinking that no one will find out. Well, guess what? They found out. <laughs> and uh, this uh, complaint that was filed last week is just atrocious. I mean, this is something that you might have expected to happen back in the day when, you know, backroom handshake deals were made not on the record where bribery might have been at play because there wasn't as much oversight on things but you know in the modern era where we're fully capable of figuring out what anybody did thought said wrote etc because of the proliferation of documentation that that says all that you would think that people would simply not do the wrong thing but here we have an example of uh, and not just one person but several deciding that they were going to cover this up for whatever reason um and the reason is they wanted to be heroes they wanted to be given credit for cracking down on crime and making sure that bad people went to prison and uh, unfortunately <laughs> you know no matter how you look at this if it results in thousands of convictions being thrown out. And let's face it, there are a lot of people that did exactly the bad thing that they're accused of and convicted of doing, but that's all going to be undone. And is that justice? Of course not. And we as a society should be upset by that because if they did something wrong willfully in the interest of trying to make sure that their conviction statistics were pumped up enough it's a problem because that's the tail wagging the dog right there so as it's coming out um the the procedure that just started last week for one prosecutor in particular that seems to be one of the most culpable individuals in this whole process she had full knowledge of this investigation full knowledge of the problems continued prosecuting cases without disclosing any of it got conviction sent people to prison and there are people in prison right now as a result of this whole process. And she knew about it. She knew the whole thing and just said, well, I, you know, didn't think that I needed to disclose it, which is hogwash. Crazy, crazy thought. But that's kind of where this defense mechanism comes in where, oh, well, I consulted with others and we all agreed that it shouldn't be disclosed. Why? Because they didn't think it mattered. Why didn't they think it mattered? Because they want convictions. You know, it's a biased perspective. And that, that raises a very interesting point. There is this rule of ethics that a prosecutor must seek justice and not merely a conviction. Those are nice words. It sounds good. But what does it really mean? And when you are in the office and you, you have signed up for this task of keeping society safe and making sure that the laws are faithfully you know enforced you you have you have to have some kind of um 
thought process where you believe that you're doing the right thing, you know. And again, you know, it's not a category of people that are obviously underpaid, overworked, and that there's an underappreciation for what they do. I'll, I'll give them that. The prosecutors do not get the uh, respect that, you know, for what they are actually trying to accomplish properly made. So, you know, maybe there's a bit of angst. Maybe there's a bit of uh, resentment that, you know, the the common man or woman on the street doesn't understand you know how hard it is to actually do all this and that it's probably if you're going to tell a little white lie or you're going to bend the truth a bit it's not going to hurt anybody because you know as the prosecutor what what you're trying to accomplish which is this bigger goal of getting justice in in how that term is defined in their own minds um and I've seen this phenomenon. I mean, I, as I said, I was a prosecutor early in my career. And, you know, there was very seldom, it did happen, but it was very seldom that someone would say in a meeting like, hey, we really better be careful here to make sure that the rights of this defendant are being properly protected. More often than not, it was like, oh, how are we going to make sure we get this conviction? How are we going to get the bad guy in, in prison? How are we going to do this? Because that's our job. And almost the cynicism. Uh, and it's a cynicism directed at defense lawyers. You know, I'll just remind you, you know this, but the heart of what a defense lawyer does is embodied in the Sixth Amendment of the Constitution. Um, pretty important, the fact that someone has the right to be represented by counsel because our founding fathers, the old men wearing white wigs, didn't trust the government that they were creating. <laughs> you know what I mean? They were like, okay, we're going to make we're going to give the government certain powers. However, the people will have more power. And before they naturally realize that there will be government involvement, if there is a government, there will be times when the government's trying to do something to deprive somebody of freedom. We have to have some kind of law and order in our society in order for it to function properly. But acknowledging the fact that we can't take advantage of citizens and that they need to have that protection in place. I mean, it's part of the fabric of our society that one is entitled to not only a defense, but the assistance of a trained, licensed person. I say licensed, but back when the Sixth Amendment was drafted as part of the Bill of Rights, um, there was no such thing as law licenses. Uh, lawyers became lawyers, much like uh, shoemakers become shoemakers. They, they apprenticed with somebody learned the trade, learned how to do some stuff. And then based on that training, then sort of got the right to handle cases individually. Ironically, we have this licensing process now that kind of bypasses the, the old requirement that someone would have to know what they're doing. Now it's just a license. It's just something that you pay for. And you say, I've got a piece of paper from a law school that says I took classes and I passed them. And then I took a bar exam and it said, I'm smart enough to know how to answer multiple choice questions. Um, not in Wisconsin, of course. In Wisconsin, you simply graduate from law school and you automatically just become a lawyer. So, hey, it's time for another break. And if you will stay tuned, I will be back right after these messages. And what we've been talking about are drug cases, but I want you to think about that same concept if it were applied in cases where there are known actual individual victims, somebody who has been wronged. And I don't just mean society in general, I mean a person. 
let's say it's a robbery or a sexual assault or a shooting or a homicide or whatever. And there's this systemic approach where the pressure to obtain a conviction, and it's really more than just obtaining a conviction because the way it's supposed to work, the way that our balance of powers, the way that the three branches of government are supposed to coexist and simultaneously support yet, you know, have tension with each other just to make sure things stay equal. That discretion that comes from the executive branch, the prosecutor, uh, should normally be exercised in such a way where if that agency has the time, resources, talent, intelligence, <laughs> etc., responsibility to the voters, then there should be an analysis of whether or not a particular case warrants prosecution. And there should be times where the answer is no. For whatever reason, evidence is not sufficient, or there's a problem with how this process occurred. Uh, you, you, uh, many different things, and those things should be part of the process. I mean, that's, that discretion is inherent and, and must be exercised in order for it to mean anything. But more often nowadays, we see the tendency to just charge whatever you can and hope for a conviction if you're a prosecutor. Now, you've heard John and I talk about an issue that's tr been troubling. It's something that's gaining more and more momentum over the years. And it's basically this concept that trials don't happen as much anymore as they used to. One might argue that, oh, that's just because police work is that much better. Science is that much better. We're able to, you know, do things in a more precise manner than we used to in the past. Therefore, the evidence is better in all cases. It's more convincing. It basically shows a defendant and that defendant's lawyer that there's no reason or hope in trying to challenge it. So, you know, the conviction rate, the percentage of cases that are brought, you know, is very, very high right now. And on its face, that might seem like a good thing. Like, hey, they're doing a great job. But at the same time, we have all these other factors that contribute to, <clears throat> you know, an unprecedented number of what we now know are wrongful convictions. And if you could go back 30 years ago and identify a case where there was a travesty because someone who was actually innocent yet convicted based on the evidence, there would be less than a handful of cases, maybe a couple, that you could scientifically say, this thing never happened. It, it, it was a rare occurrence. Now it's happening almost every day. I mean, there is a website out there that talks about, that keeps track of exonerations. And I used, I started following this when it was kind of a new thing. Like, hey, they were discovering that science can actually set people free because the science is better now than it was when they were prosecuted. And we realized through, you know, actual um, proper scientific techniques, testing advancements in technology, that the wrong person got convicted. And it's, it's an embarrassment. It's, it's, a, it's a troubling thing. But it wasn't that long ago that most prosecutors didn't believe that it was even possible for an innocent person to be convicted. I mean, let me say that again. There was a belief that it wasn't possible 
for an innocent person to get convicted. Part of that is based on sort of a blind faith in the system that juries, you know, will always get it right because there's some sort of divine intervention that makes sure things happen that way. Um, but that's all been proven wrong, you know, to a very great extent. And, and one would hope that that would be something that would take, that prosecutors would take very seriously because the entire reason why they exist, the entire reason they have the jobs they have is to strengthen our faith in the system. And if that faith disappears, what's the incentive to even try and follow the law? I mean, if you, if you come to the conclusion that you could be innocently walking down the street, minding your own business, not committing any crime, yet you still run the, the risk of having to go to prison for the rest of your life, or in some states getting the death penalty for something you didn't do, and that becomes the well-known that that's an, it's a possibility, which is happening, you know? Why would you say, hey, I'm going to be careful, I'm going to make sure I follow the law, I'm going to make sure I do all the right things, I'm going to steer clear, because of your pride in freedom rather than your fear of prosecution. And that's exactly what our founding fathers, fathers never wanted us to do. They didn't want us to fear the government. That's what all those amendments in the Bill of Rights have to do with. Is that we don't want to have a culture, a society that fears the government because we don't trust the government. But that's exactly what's been happening. And it's getting worse. I'm telling you. This example in Massachusetts should serve as an example of exactly what not only can go wrong, but has gone wrong in many places. In our country, these United States, where we boast that we have the best system of justice in the world, and that is true, it is the best system of justice, but being willing to analyze the imperfections that we detect and doing something publicly about it to make sure that not only it doesn't happen again, but people know what went wrong. So it can serve as an example of what not to do. I mean, that's the argument that the prosecutors make when they're saying so-and-so needs to go to prison for a long time because that sends the message not only to this person, but to any anybody else who would do such a thing that if you do it, you'll go to prison for so many decades. I hear that argument every day in court from prosecutors. We need to send the message. The public needs to know that if you do this bad thing, you're gone. It won't be tolerated. Yet we see example upon example, time after time, situations where prosecutors are basically doing exactly the opposite of what they are preaching. And I know it's my job to defend against these cases, so I obviously have a personal interest in it. I have an emotional, psychological interest in all of this. It's something I care about deeply. But at the same time, it should be something that is common sense to all of us. And it's just a matter of whether or not you're paying attention. So, you know, this will be painful in Massachusetts, no doubt. I mean, there's going to be some bad, bad flack from all this. People that committed crimes are going to go free because the prosecutors and the powers that be thought it was okay to kind of fudge on some stuff because they know better. They know better than juries. That's what they're thinking. They know better than a jury. They know so-and-so is actually guilty. So why mess up the works by revealing something that would give a jury a reason 
to question the integrity of the process. I mean, I can I can picture it right now. I can see and hear the conversation in the meeting room somewhere in Massachusetts when prosecutors are talking about what they should do about this problem. And I'm sure somebody came up with the idea that, hey, you know, you and I know this stuff doesn't make any difference because we know this person's guilty. I mean, it was obviously cocaine they got caught with. Okay, so the analyst lied on the report. Okay, the analyst was stealing the drugs. But, you know, the, the heart of the matter is, dude's guilty, right? So let's not let this person get away with it just because we have a little problem with our process. Yeah, that's bad news because what that spells is tolerance for something that is completely un-American. <laughs> I mean, that is a function of governments that control their citizenry in such a way so that they are not part of the process. They don't feel that they are they have any trust in the government. They don't feel that they can believe in a system of freedom. And it's terribly, terribly um, you know, bad for society when that happens. So we'll see what happens. I'll give you an update as things progress, but this is going to be bad. I'm sure that the, the lawyer, this particular lawyer, which is one of several, she's going to lose her law license like forever, like gone, not allowed to practice law anymore. And that's probably the right thing to have happen here. And we'll see how many people end up getting, uh, you know, released from prison because of this big fiasco. Anyway, thank you for tuning in. Tune in next week as you can every week right here on 1330 101.5 WHBL. This has been Legal Defense. Have a great weekend, everybody.